Welcome to the show. We have a very special treat today. Legendary writer and comedian Hugh Fink is here. And wow, I was on the edge of my seat listening to him talk about being a writer and working at SNL and all the other cool stuff that he's done. He's got great stories and great insight on all of this stuff. So you'll get to hear him talk about working with Rodney Dangerfield, David Spade, Chris Farley, Chevy Chase, and many, many more. So plus he'll talk about SNL sketches that were rejected and a lot of other behind the scenes kind of stuff. And we get to hear about some stuff that he's working on now, including the writing classes that he's doing. So check out this episode. And when you're done, click the link in the notes for his website for more information. Here's Hugh. Oh, welcome. Hugh Fink, comedian, writer. How are you doing? Good, man. Good to be here. Yeah. Thanks for being on my show. This is amazing. Like your career, you know, I, I knew that you had worked on SNL, but going back and doing research and finding all this other stuff that you've done, it's, it's, you've done a lot of amazing things. It's got to be fun doing all that, right? Thank you. It has been fun. Yeah. So you start out though, before you even get into comedy, you start out with music. Do you think there's a connection there? Because it seems like I gravitate, most of my show is musicians or comedians, but you know, sometimes there's a connection between comedy and music. There's definitely a connection for me because the way I write and perform comedy is structured like a piece of music, meaning there's, I establish a theme, I do variations on the theme, I try to build the momentum like a piece of music that starts off with a melody and then builds and builds. Yeah. And did you find that there's, cause some, some of my friends, like I remember my roommate in college was a music major and he was so funny. I'm like, sometimes I just think it's maybe that part of the brain, the creativity or something. Yeah. In terms of, I know some musicians who are incredibly accomplished, but not funny, but I know others who have good senses of humor. So that might be more of a, uh, a different talent, but obviously in terms of understanding structure and creating and writing, there's some similarities. Yeah. So when you went to NYU, did you, did you go for music or for, was it more theater or, or were you just not sure? I was actually admitted in the, in the acting program. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Even though I had never shown much interest in acting, but I had shown a lot of interest in wanting to be funny. Yeah. So and- I thought the easiest way to be funny was to get into acting, which of course was a terrible idea. <laughs> I learned the first few weeks at NYU, the teachers took it. They were kind of humorless. Yeah. No room for my humor. Yeah, th- that's kind of surprising. You said you dropped out of it for like three weeks because the teacher had made some comment about we need to have responsibility with humor. And you're like, uh, comedy is supposed to be, there's not supposed to be rules for comedy. That Exactly. In fact, I would argue comedy should be irresponsible. Yeah. It should be rebellious, right? And subversive. And if you have to have this thing hanging over you that, oh, I need to be responsible with my jokes, then you're going to not be very good. Right. Because it... it you can really push the the boundaries, but if you're still funny, funny's funny. I agree. Yeah, I think that's a good rule. So then that's smart. Then you just decide to drop out. You move to L.A. and you start stand up. That's got to be hard back then because I think you you started in the '80s. Like now, there's so many comedy clubs and open mics. But back then, how did you even get in at that point? It's got to be harder. Tough. I mean, the boom of stand up had started, so there were a lot of clubs around the country that started popping up. So once I was able to establish myself, I could make a decent living outside LA. But in LA, there were more comedians than anywhere in the world. So it was very competitive. Right. And there were there were really three main clubs when I started. Um, there was the Improv, the Comedy Store, and the um, LA Cabaret. So those were the big three. And they had open mic nights though, or? They did. Okay. But um, 
they weren't as I think nowadays there's people who just continue to do open mics over and over. Back then you had more of a career where you'd go, okay, if I'm serious about this, I'm going to pursue it. And if I'm not good, I'm going to stop doing the open mics. Right. But you, so what is the timeline with that? Cause you kind of have to put it, you have to pay your dues and you, as some comedians tell me, they're like, you have to get your ass kicked at the open mics before you can really start to get. That's exactly right. Um, there were three main clubs in LA when I started the comedy store, the improv and the LA cabaret in the Valley, which is no longer around. I was going to say, I haven't heard of that one. No, but the other two clubs are still going strong, but the LA cabaret is where I got in first. I got in as a paid MC. So I worked oh. with Dennis Miller and some, some great acts really early in my career there. And then, so you did perform at the comedy store. Have you seen that uh, documentary show on the, I didn't see that show. No, I've, I know people who are in it. I've heard about it. Yeah, that's really cool. But th- this was a really cool thing that you did. Um, and I, I only saw a clip of it uh, that you were on the Rodney Dangerfield show. Uh, but you said you worked with him for like two months and you guys became friends. We did. He took a liking to me and my comedy. And Rodney's the type of guy where if he likes you, then he wants to hang out. So we that's would cool. have we had drinks in Vegas and it was very cool. Yeah, what is he? I've, I don't think I've had anyone on the show that has worked with him or known him. What is he like off camera? Is he kind of like he is on camera? Well, yes, a, a bit of a grouch because he was really? an older guy. He put up with a lot of ridiculousness, in the business. So he sort of didn't suffer fools. So he was very funny, but he also sort of was weary of the world and would complain a lot. It was pretty funny. Interesting, yeah, but in a comedic way. In a comedic way, yes. Okay, gotcha. So the first time you got a t- show a joke on TV was uh, for Dennis Miller. Is that right? Yes, I'd like to think that was my first. I mean, I did stand up on TV with my own material. Yeah, right? I've seen that. Bob Saget hosted the CBS Morning Show um, before he did Full House, so he got me on as a comedian. So I did like two and a stand up on CBS, which is fun. Yeah. So in terms of writing for other comedians. I think that's true. My first joke was for Dennis Miller's HBO talk show. Okay. Was Bob say, what was the one where I saw a clip online where you act, you asked somebody in the audience, like, does anyone have a uh, 18th century uh, wood violin? And, and, so, and you get up there and do violin jokes and it kills. And it kills. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that bit, Chuck, I did several times. I, I think I used that line on the Rodney Dangerfield HBO special. Oh, that's what it was. Yeah. It, uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Cause you um, do you perform a sketch and then you perform in the audience and it's a big audience. The big audience. Yes. Yeah, that's fun. So, and then obviously David Spade helps you get the job at SNL, but how did you know David Spade? Is that from just the improv in LA? So he moved out from Arizona, immediately made a, a, a splash, started getting movie parts, but we became fast friends where our sense of humors were similar. Um, I think the first time I met David, he said, dude, I speak French. And I said, I do speak a little bit. So he had me coach him. He was auditioning for a movie where he needed a French accent. So I sat with him at the comedy club mm. and helped him with his accent. Uh, who, got who's got the darker sense of humor? Oh, that's a good one. I think Spade might say I do. Yeah, that's that's yeah. A, yeah, that's like some of your stuff that it's like maybe people don't see that. But like, are you guys darker, like off camera? Like, can you make darker joke? <laughs> oh, my God. So, Chuck, so my friend Alan Havey, you know, the great comedian actor who co-starred in Mad Men and he's yeah. on he's on Billions now on Showtime. He and I hang out and we're so dark 
when we're hanging out and crack each other up. But we always talk about how half the stuff we say, we could never say on stage or publicly. <laughs> yeah. But it's all like, see, that's what I don't understand about the whole canceling thing and stuff. Like, I think if it comes of a, from a place of love and you know, to make people laugh, not to make people feel stupid and, and feel bad right. and demean people. That's different. And I've seen comedians do that. And that makes me cringe, but you can kind of tell when they're just being playful and trying to be, have fun. I agree with you. Yeah. And I think part of it is being clever too. Yeah. If you say something about race or ethnicity or sexuality or, um, or women and men, you just have to be clever about it. Mm-hmm. Cause if you're not clever, then it's just going to come off as, mean-spirited, stupid, without, like you said, the playfulness. Yeah, I think it's better, too. I love when comedians make fun of themselves. When they they make the joke on them, and they're the punchline, I think that makes them more likable, I think, in a lot of ways. Well, that was Rodney Dangerfield. To me, there's been no comedian in history who was did self-deprecating humor as well as Rodney, right? His whole thing was, hey, I'm the guy who gets no respect. Right, no, totally. Hour and a half on jokes on why he doesn't get respect. You can't get self-deprecating than that. Exactly. Did you ever come across Kinnison in those those I days? I did, Chuck. I knew Sam, and he was friendly to me from the comedy store in L.A. That's why I knew him. And yeah. he liked the violin. He thought the violin was really hip and cool. Um, but, you know, we weren't friends. But if he'd uh, see me, he would always be very warm. And it was upsetting to me. You know, his death was kind of shocking. Oh, I know. And like such a talent. And it's so weird because it wasn't because of drug. I don't know if people know, like it wasn't because of drugs and alcohol, like at least from his use. He had cleaned up and then he just got hit by a drunk driver, I think. Wasn't that, isn't that what happened? Something like that. Yeah. yeah. And in terms of, I don't know if he had cleaned up, maybe he had, but there was sort of a weirdness that it was not the drugs that killed him. It was an auto accident that mm-hmm. he wasn't at fault. Yeah. That's what I, that's what I thought it was, but um, so anyway, so you get the job at SNL, and um, this is interesting. The majority of the writing on SNL is done on Monday, Tuesday, then Wednesday, the table read, then rehearsal Thursday, Friday. So how does it work if there's huge news on Thursday or Friday or even Saturday? I feel like this year, because I remember the election was officially announced on a Saturday, and I feel like Saturday Night Live was like on it that night. How, how right. stressful is that, getting news, and it's like, oh, shit, we got to write a sketch about this and like, it's An exciting hour. and stressful, right? Because we kind of live for that. You, who who wouldn't want to have the opportunity to write a sketch about late breaking news? But it's stressful as well. And in that case, you know, all the writers are just on their laptops, have the TV on, so that we stay posted on what's happening in the world. And the moment the big story breaks, then Lorne Michaels ultimately would decide, yeah, you know what? We're going to cancel this cold open. And we're going to do a new one. So go write it. Wow. That's, and then, so the, the actors, they, they don't memorize those lines. They just, do they do, do they still do cue cards or they do like a teleprompter? It's still an actual physical. It is. Interesting. Yeah. One of the few shows in history. The reason that is because teleprompter would be on a monitor and that's takes up too much room. And you know, you can't, you can't put a monitor in a lot of different places. It has to be upright. A cue card person can go on even being holding. They can literally crouch down on the floor. Ah, yeah. They're, they're much more hidden. And you can have several of them on one sketch placed at different locations for the different actors to see. 
Yeah. Okay. That's great. Yeah. So you get there and you, cause you had actually written for David Spade before you were officially on, you wrote some of the Hollywood minute stuff, right? I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you guys do the Spade in America. Both of those are amazing. Those are two Thank of you. my favorites. I love, and then was it, uh, so you wrote the Eddie Murphy joke that got him in trouble. I collaborated with him on that. Yes. And then of course I was there when he got the fateful phone call from Eddie screaming at him and threatening him. Yeah, see, I knew that he was that Eddie Murphy was mad, but I didn't know until I heard you say that the other day in an interview that he actually called him and screamed at him. I mean, that's that's really weird to me. That I don't know. That's yeah, I guess it's, it's, it's disappointing that Eddie would not have a sense of humor about himself, right? Even though, yeah. yes, the joke was making fun of the fact that Eddie's movie didn't do well. Eddie was still a multi-millionaire superstar. One would think he could just laugh it off. Well, yeah. And then maybe that was the kick in the ass he needed. Cause then, well, I think it was like a year later, you got Nutty Professor and that thing was a huge blockbuster. That was a great movie. Absolutely. Yeah. So you had some, uh, some bits that you, it's hard to get bits or sketches through because there's so many writers and it's competitive. And you said you can either have a hot streak or a slump. And uh, I like the, hearing the stories of the ones that, that didn't make it though. Like you, you talked oh. about this, uh, inappropriate shoe salesman bit with uh, a yeah, Jim Brewer. Jim, I wrote for Jim Brewer. That sounds where, hilarious. Uh, yeah. A woman who would come in and he, she'd go, Oh, I really like these sandals. He'd go, yeah. Like, uh, you know, there's two colors. These are for dancing and these are for banging. <laughs> go, what? And, and then, yeah. He would just say something really inappropriate to each person. Another of my favorite sketches that got cut Chuck at dress rehearsal. It was during Right after 9-11, it was the first show after the September 11th attacks. Oh, wow. And I wrote a sketch for Will Ferrell as the singer Cat Stevens, who also, remember, he became Yusuf Islam. He converted to Islam. That's right. So my whole bit was about, it was Will doing a hilarious Cat Stevens impression, but all of his hit songs were anti-Semitic and pro-terrorist. Oh, God. (laughs) So NBC... NBC hated the premise because right. they felt it was libelous. But, you know, I had done research and found out that the real Cat Stevens had said some things that could be construed as anti-Semitic. So I didn't feel I was making it up. I felt like this is based on reality. Yeah. But they didn't like that premise. And I can tell that there was discomfort with the sketch even during rehearsal. So Will did it on camera. Oh, really? It got, yeah, it got big laughs, but it still got cut. Oh, so sometimes they cut it after it's even recorded or. Well, they, when I say it was cut, we did it at dress rehearsal. And oh, was cut. oh yeah. so sometimes they cut it after it, cu- it can make it up to that point and still get cut. Oh, yeah. I'd say ah. like every show, a bunch of things make it to dress rehearsal, but then get cut before the live show. So, so you, you guys know. have a little extra that and you, you prepare for that or you just adjust? Well, do you, when you say, do you mean to. As a writer, do you prepare or do you mean does Lauren Michaels Yeah, prepare? Do, do they have like, they do they prepare for like two hours and then they cut a couple to make it 90 minutes or? Yes, that's correct. Okay. But the reason is because Lauren believes he likes to have options of what to put on the air at the final minute. It sort of be like a football coach mm-hmm. having a bunch of players and deciding at the last minute, who am I going to put in? in the fourth quarter. Yeah. And didn't they cut one of your sketches? Didn't he tell you like in the last 10 minutes, he said, all right, cut this one in half and find you're like, what the, how do you do that? Yeah. That's My, ridiculous. It was, a, it was a sketch with Danny DeVito and Tracy Morgan. And I had to chop it in half like two minutes before it went on the air and it did air. But of course the ending, there was no ending. I just had to cut it. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's crazy. So, yeah, I mean, you've had some great ones. The the, the fajita, ran- Stevie Nicks fajita roundup, the Hanukkah one, the uh, Tracy Morgan coming out of the bathtub. That was yours. And then Mr. Peepers. That's one of my favorites. Now, oh, thank you. So Chris Kattan invented Mr. Peepers right. when he was an actor at the Groundlings Theater here in L.A., but he didn't know how to write it for TV. So I'd seen a tape of him performing it and thought it was brilliant. So I approached Chris and said, I've got an idea for how to do this on television. So, you know, we did it successfully. We probably did like four or five of them. Yeah, no, I love that. Now, was it your idea too? Because I'm trying to think, I think I saw that video of him doing it at the Groundlings too. And I like how when he comes out, the first time ever with Will Ferrell, who's like six, five, he's carrying him like a little baby. Was that That's your right. idea? So it was my idea to have Will as a professor introducing Chris Kattan as the missing link. I thought that was the perfect <laughs> way in. Right. But Chris did tell me that he said, cast Will because Will's tall. Right. And he can physically handle me. So that was a smart decision. Yeah. And putting on those like suspenders, like he's like a little baby and, that's right. Uh, and you, and you, so you write out like every, okay, chew the apple, spit it out, or how much? All, it's all scripted. That's right. And then, wow. you know, Chris, he chooses how much apple to spit out, how long to do those bits, but they are all scripted. So the director knows what each beat is. Okay. It's, is, is it most of that stuff scripted? I mean, how often do the actors go off script then and just. Well, they're not supposed to go off script. Really? So I would say, oh, yeah. Most of Saturday Night Live is very scripted. Oh, okay. When actors break up laughing, that's not scripted. Sure, uh, sure. They can't really add dialogue. The only way you can add is like Dana Carvey when he does his brilliant impressions. You know, when he would do uh, President, he would do Ross Perot. Do you remember when? He oh, yeah. Do, and he, he would go, You see, you see what I'm talking about? You see here, you see. If I'm the writer, I might write one or two you sees. Okay. But then Dana goes on the air and he'll do eight of them. Because he's just in character. Right. Okay. So so, not, the good thing about that is it's not throwing anybody off. The other actors still know what's coming next. Or what, if, if, is a, what about a physical thing? Like I thought uh, when Chris, and this was before your time, obviously, but when Chris Farley did the uh, motivational speaker and he falls through the table, wasn't that yeah. not in the script or? I mean, it, was, it probably was in the script that he falls down. What wasn't in the script was that the table would break. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that's probably what was not expected. Right. But even right. with Farley or anyone who's physical, you you still have to kind of know what's going to happen, so the director knows where the camera needs to be. Okay, gotcha. It's live, right. Yeah. So another sketch you did, um, you wrote for Norm. You did the Larry King one, and you said Norm was one of your favorites. Definitely, if he's not my number one, he's definitely in the top five of SNL people ever. Uh, but right. what was the? I heard some him tell some story about how he would pitch some sketch in every single meeting and it was shot down every, it was like, it was like this running joke. What, what was the story with that? Yeah. You know, that sounds familiar and you're right. It was like a ridiculously old premise, meaning so, it, it almost felt like something that could have been pitched in the 1950s. <laughs> Did it just to amuse all of us. And the host of course is not in on the joke. So they were always very polite and they would listen to Norm's pitch and go, oh, okay, maybe maybe that will do that. But of course, Norm had never no intention of doing it whatsoever. It was was it something about the Hindenburg or something like that? Wow, you know, maybe I just can't remember. I, I can tell you this: Jack Farley used to. Uh, he was not a writer. He was a brilliant actor, right? Sure, but he, he was not a writer. 
but he was all the cast is invited to pitch at that meeting. So Farley would feel obligated to pitch something. So the famous story I heard is that a few days before the pitch, he had seen this old classic Hollywood movie called Marty. Okay. Which I don't even, I've never seen the movie, but it's like a well-respected film. So then they come into the pitch room and Lauren goes, Chris, you read, and he goes, um, I was thinking of, um, maybe a sketch about that movie, Marty. And the room's just dead silent because it's an old movie. No one knows what the hell he's talking about, (laughs) but he would just, because he saw the movie that weekend, he said he had a sketch idea. Of course, he didn't have a sketch. No sense at all. And then Lauren, being very witty, Lauren Michaels goes, would be the week for a Marty sketch, which of course, of course, it wouldn't be the week. No week would be the right week. It's, he but, so, uh, it sounds like a, like a kid who didn't do his homework trying to well, like... That's how Farley was, exactly. <laughs> he felt guilty. He's probably, you know, out drinking and all like He didn't do his homework. He wasn't good at coming up with sketch ideas. No, so. but so he wasn't a cast member when you were there, but he did come back to host. And yeah. uh, you wrote the El Nino bit I for did. him. So the part where the funniest line in that whole sketch, obviously, is like, El Nino is Spanish for the Nino. And it's like that little pause. Do you write that pause in the script or is that just Farley being Farley? Because that's perfect timing. It was perfect timing. And I would say it's knowing my writing style. I very easily could have put dot, dot, dot. To give him a pause. Okay. But also, Farley and I were friendly, and I could see at rehearsal, maybe discussing it with him and saying, "It'd be really funny if you if you hesitate before saying the Nino." So either way, it was you know I'm sure we discussed it. Yeah, it's just so sad. You said that you could kind of tell at that point he wasn't doing well. Like in- everybody could, yeah, because yeah. he was his was breathing heavy. He was overweight. Um, it was really unfortunate. Do you think there's some alternate uni- alternate universe where he would get the help and continue on and have a great career? Because he's just so damn funny. Talk. In fact, I would say the the opposite. That what I learned from Chris is that when someone is that addicted and has that much of a sort of death wish or low self esteem, no amount of money or help in the world will save them. The reason I say that is because. Hmm. There were so many people who loved Chris and tried to help him. Yeah. They'd pay for him to go to rehab. They'd hire a sponsor to be with him 24-7 to stop him from getting high. Still didn't work. Because when you're that rich and famous as he was, he'd always have ways to beat the system. So if you left him alone for an hour, you know, he'd probably pay somebody to somehow get him high or sneak out. So it's really tragic, but yeah. I have come to believe that there's some people who you can't save. Yeah, no, that's, that's right. I used to work in the schools. I was a counselor and it's like, yeah, we, we saw the same. My, my uh, principal t- taught me that he's like, you can't save them all. Cause I would get mm-hmm. so frustrated. I'm like, we got to help this kid. And it's like, sometimes the kids just, they don't want help. That's, that's really right. frustrating. So yeah. And Farley yeah. used to tell people, I never heard him say this, but he idolized John Belushi and Belushi died when he was 33 Farley died when he was 33. And that's why I say there was almost like a death wish that he just saw himself going out that way. Mm. So sad. Well, yeah, I mean, you had some other uh, great, you wrote a lot of monologues for a lot of these hosts, David Schwimmer and Robert Downey Jr., Britney Spears, 
Quentin Tarantino, that one uh, kind of fell flat because he didn't want to like take your advice, which is interesting. No, no, that was absurd. I, I, um, you know, he went, he insisted on singing a song from the TV show Bewitched. Which is really obscure. Really obscure, right? And he didn't even parody the song. So the audience thinks there's going to be some big joke and there's no joke. He's just literally performing a song from the TV show Bewitched. So it completely fell flat. Not to mention, he's not a good singer. He's a movie director. That's so, so interesting, he, though, because he's such a brilliant writer with movies. But I guess it's just like it's such a different avenue that, I mean, I don't know. That's right. Yeah, maybe comedy is not his thing. And then you were there when Bill Murray came back and hosted. Did you help write his monologue? Or? My mem- I did not. Um, my memory is that when Bill came back, I didn't get anything on that week, which, you know, happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. I had had a great um, with Bill. I, I did the ESPY Awards when Dennis Miller hosted them. Oh, yeah. And Bill was the special guest star on the ESPYs. So I worked with him on the ESPY Awards a few years before Saturday Night Live. OK, yeah, that's, he's a legend. And then um, so you were there when Chevy Chase came back. I think he hosted a couple times when you were there. I just saw something on the. Is this true? Did he because he's banned from SNL for life? Is that true? That I don't know. He wasn't banned when I was there during my seven years. In fact, one night he came back, not even to be on camera, but just to socialize. And I saw him hanging out in the writer's room. But he did host at least once when I was there, maybe twice, but I think just once. And it didn't go well. Yeah, because I heard he slapped Sherry O'Terry, and he, but he said he did it jokingly or something. That could be. He also did something where that you know pitch meeting you were talking about he comes in, Chuck, and a, a female writer pitched him an idea for a sketch. It had to do with him teaching uh, driver's ed class, which is a, kind of a funny premise. And he goes, hey, I got a better idea for a sketch. How about you blow me? What? And the room was shocked. What the fuck? Like, to say that to a female writer and you're Chevy Chase. And so it just sort of set a terrible mood for the rest of the week and the whole cast and a lot of the writers basically took the attitude of screw this guy. We hate him. Like, is is he saying those kinds of things? Like, does he think he's being funny or he thinks uh, he's being funny? Okay. Interesting. Weird. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then Charlie Sheen was there, was hosted when you were there. Yeah. I loved working with Charlie. That's interesting. um, Yeah. He was really nice. And I did do it with him trying to remember oh i know what it was i think i did pimp chat remember tracy morgan yeah 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 a host of a a, it was a pimp having his own show and i think charlie and i did pimp chat together okay yeah you wrote for tracy morgan you said that he had a hard time it was kind of like a chris farther like he was writing was not his thing he was more of a writing not his thing he could give you a funny line if it was a character and you'd say hey tracy if I said this to you, what would you say back? And he'd give you, you know, some hilarious lines. But he generally wasn't a writer. And he, he was very respectful of me and the other writers. He'd basically go, you tell me if it's funny and I'll do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he's a great performer. I heard you say this. I can't believe this because this would have been so awesome that Jeff Ross was close to getting the weekend update and he made the crew laugh really hard. Like, how did he not get that job? Because that would have been amazing. It would have been. Honestly, 
I think that Ross is a guy who has a lot of fans, but then there's a lot of people who aren't fans of his comedy. (laughs) And what happened is I think there was a lot of internal arguing at the show about whether Jeff should get the job or not. Interesting. In other words, his audition went really well. There's no denying that. But that still didn't make the whole creative team think that he was the right guy for the job. And Jimmy Fallon had been offered it. I mean, Lauren was trying to get Jimmy to do update, but Jimmy didn't want to do it. Mm. But Jimmy at the last minute said, I'll do it. Okay. So that stopped Ross or anyone else from getting it. So do you have a, do you play a part in um, people getting a job on SNL either as writers or performers or both? No, only unofficially. Like when I was there, if I put in a good word for someone, they would take that seriously, but I didn't have any more power than that. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Cause it seems like it's really hard. I know so many comedians that I think are so hilarious and I'm like, you should be on SNL. Your sketches on uh TikTok or Instagram or whatever are hilarious. But like I had one guy tell me that, and I guess he was later considered for a writing job and, and didn't get it. But he told me, he goes, Oh, it's, it's almost like you have to know someone to I'd get that job. That. You know, I knew David Spade most, if not everyone I know who had a writing job there did have some connection. But it's not like, you know, it's not like nepotism or something where it's like, oh, well, like, we're going to give you the job because you're friends with this person. It's like, they're funny and everything, but also like, you know, the person, you know, you can work with them and that kind of thing, right? Exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's not nepotism. It's, it's actually based on you've had to display some talent to someone who's also talented who can vouch for you. So in hindsight, that was like a really brilliant move on your part to drop out of NYU and just go to LA and just grind out in the comedy clubs that paid off. I think so. Although um, to correct the set, the record, Chuck, I didn't drop out of NYU. I graduated. I just dropped, I just dropped out of the acting program. Wait, you did. Oh, okay. I thought you know, I, I did my full undergraduate time at NYU and I got my degree, but I switched from acting. They had just started a, dramatic writing program. I was looking oh. the first year. So I ended up in the writing program and got my degree. Okay. I thought you just left after, I thought you left the whole no. program after no, three I weeks. I stayed okay. in New York for, you know, three and a half years. I, I took a lot of classes every semester. So I was able to graduate a semester early. Oh, so that probably did help a little bit then with like some of that professional, re- and that's such a prestigious school. It is. No, I, I, and I, you know, it was very expensive and my parents were nice enough to send me there. So I wanted to not only graduate college, but I wanted the experience of studying English and history and politics and different stuff. So I stuck with it. Did you make connections there too? Cause like, I feel like everyone that goes there is. No, not so much then, but you know who Robert Smigel and I won mm. a comedy contest together. And then of course we both went on to do cool things. Oh uh, yeah. He's yeah. And you He's amazing. were you guys both in this is 40. Yes. Cause you played the, he was like the friend and then you played, you had just a cameo, but I had the cameo. I hit on Megan Fox yeah. in the lingerie store. <laughs> yeah. You just, what was the line is like, you said something like, just I said, take my credit card. Just, I said, you look, you look a lot like, uh, I said, I'm buying it for my sister. Oh, that was what she said. What's your sister, how she built. I said, actually a lot like you. And she said, Oh, would you like me to try on something? I said, yeah, why don't I give you my credit card? And you just put on a lot of stuff. It was like, a, clearly <laughs> yeah. I was just sitting on her. And by the way, Judd was so cool. I improvised that line mm. and that stayed in the movie. And that was great. That was a great part. Great Thank scene. You. Awesome. Um, and then, so then after you leave SNL, you get 
Um, cause you would let, you got a job, uh, writing for the sitcom and then you also wrote for Drew Carey. What do you like better writing for sketch comedy or sitcoms? Cause I would think I sketch, I don't like writing sitcoms. That's what I would think. Yeah. No, it's too constraining. You spend hours and hours and hours breaking the stories. And it's, to me, it's incredibly boring and has not much to do with being funny. So you're coming up with the plots for each episode and then either as a group, you, you write this, the scripts or they assign one script to a writer and you go off and write it. But either way, I find the process not nearly as fun as other types of comedy writing. Does it at least pay more though? Because it's... It does. Okay. That's, the, that's the payoff. It, it pays well. Yeah. So yes. Because it's prime who, time. Yeah. And you've worked on, for people who've worked on sitcoms for years and years consistently, that's a great living. Mm-hmm. And now you've never written a screenplay though, is or have you and just not had it? Uh... I've only had ones that have sold as development deals. Okay. But I've never had a movie made. You're right. What? It, again, it's not my love or strength because like a sitcom, a movie is a story, but it's instead of being a half hour, it's like, you know, 90 minutes or two hours. Mm-hmm. I think I'm much better and more interested in, self-contained pieces of comedy where you don't have to tell a whole story. And I'm assuming you like performing stand-up better than writing though. I enjoy both. I okay. mean, I enjoy writing stand-up for other people, but I love performing myself and writing things for myself as well. Are you, do you tour now or do you, or do you kind of just do shows I locally? Do in a limited way, for example, um, my first gig after the pandemic was Austin, uh, San Antonio, Texas. Oh. They brought me in. It's a, to this 700 seat theater. It was great. And then believe it or not, I'm doing a tour of Israel in August. I'm performing seven or six shows all over Israel. Okay. Wow. That's exciting. Yeah, it's cool. Have you, have you been there a lot? I've never been to Israel in my life. So this is a, Oh really? To get, yeah. To get brought over to perform at these shows and the audiences are mostly Americans who've moved to Israel so, of course, huh. they're going to get all the reference points, you know, for U.S. stuff. OK. Are you going to do like my friend went there and he, you know, he did the tour of all the the religious stuff and the uh, I don't know what you call it, but um, it looks really interesting. Like, really really cool. no, I'm going to hire a guide for two days when I'm not touring mm-hmm. and just, as you said, check out Jerusalem, the old city, like to learn about the politics of the region and explore a bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating stuff. So. Um, well, talk, talk, talk about the showbiz show with David Spade. Was that on for three years? Was that Comedy Central? Three seasons, yes. It was one of the highlights of my career. It was the first time I'd ever come up with a TV show idea to sell. And the first one I came up with not only sold, but went to series and was on for three seasons. Yeah. So it was really cool. What were some of the highlights of that? I mean, obviously, we could talk about the OJ thing, but what, what yeah, else so, was... So one of the highlights, Chuck, was a segment we did when Robert Blake was on trial for murder. Oh God. <laughs> so I sent, you know, the comedian actor, Andrew Daly, Andy Daly. He had a show on comedy central called. Um, yeah. I forget the name of the show, but he's a very talented guy. So we send him to the courthouse. And as Robert Blake is entering the courthouse, he asked him a bunch of ridiculous questions that had sort of nothing to do with the murder. 
Um, and, and Robert Blake got really pissed. Oh, it was great because we captured it live on camera. Wow. And then, and then some of the news outlets picked up our piece and started showing it on the news. Oh, so that wow. was really exciting. That is really cool. So you kind of wanted to do a similar thing with OJ where he was going to come in and do something that, that not talk about the murders or any of that stuff, but just right. try to do like random kind of comedy material. And you actually had to talk to OJ on the phone for. 10 yeah, minutes. he called me and he was in Florida because that's where he lives at, when he was out of jail because um, he, they, he, he, they can't come after his money, apparently, when he's in Florida. The money yeah. that he owes. So we had a a fairly long conversation. It was surreal, but he did in principle agree to be on the showbiz show. Then the network comedy central hated the idea and shot it down. And I was really mad. Yeah. But at least, I mean, you didn't get like fired off of that or anything. No, they, no, no. It's fun to like, got it's gotta be fun to push the boundaries a little bit, especially back then with network TV. I mean, now there's so much more stuff that's uncensored, but back then there was only like what HBO and Showtime. That's right. Uncensored. There were not as many outlets. Yeah. And then you worked at, you've worked as a consultant on the, like, I think you mentioned the SB awards, but also the MTV video music awards. What is your role as a consultant on those kinds of things? Cause that seems like a low stress kind of fun job. You just get to throw in some input and don't have to take all the, yeah, especially when they're coming up with um, <laughs> sketch ideas for the, for the celebrities who are going to appear on the show, mm-hmm. they would sort of ask me, Hey, do you got anything? And I would pitch ideas or maybe they'd have an idea, but they needed someone with experience to flesh it out. So I would come in and help them. That's fun. That's fun. And then, Oh, t- tell us about uh, the comedy writing. Cl- are you still doing the comedy writing class? I am. Yes. Okay. I unfortunately just, um, I can't promote new dates because I have to figure out when I'm going to offer it next. But if you go to my website, hughfink.com, I'm going to list the next workshops, which will be, I do them um, uh, ones in how to write for late night comedy talk shows. So you cover monologues and desk pieces and pre-tapes. The other workshop I do that's really popular is how to write sketch comedy for TV. So people love that because I really hone in on what it takes to write a successful sketch for Key and Peele or SNL, or there's always going to be sketch shows and the skill set stays the same no matter what the show is. Do you think that people can, they don't even need to even have to get a job on TV though, right? They can just, a lot of people are doing these sketches on TikTok or Instagram or YouTube, right? Totally. And my, what I have to talk about will totally help people in that situation because I'm really discussing how to maximize your laughs in writing a sketch that's visual if you're filming it or it's on camera. What do you, what are your thoughts on those kinds of things? Cause the thing with like TikTok is like, I think the, you only have a minute to get, so you got to be funny quick, right? I mean, you do you. And the other thing you have to establish your premise quickly, meaning if the viewer isn't quite sure what your sketch is about, it's going to fail. So if you only have a minute total, you better establish what the premise is in like the first 10 seconds most. Right. Yeah. I've seen, and there's a lot of people that on TikTok, it's like they do, it's almost like a recurring character or sketch like that, you know, you'd say on SNL, it's just the same thing. Like there's this one Mm -hmm. guy, he does a a thing where he, he's like a a disgruntled Ikea worker. Mm -hmm. And it's so hilarious because he brings up all these little things that like, if you've ever worked retail or a crappy job like that and how annoying some of the customers can be, and he'll just, yeah, nail it in like 30 seconds a minute. And it's like hilarious. That's a really good premise. And you know, sometimes if you title something, like if it comes up on screen, mm-hmm. the annoyed IKEA worker yeah. will right away as a viewer 
I'm going to understand the premise. Right. So you've done the work in three seconds and that helps. Yeah. That's, it's kind of cool to see. I like all these different avenues to see it's, um, and then are you still doing this thing with, uh, David Ketchner? It's so funny. He has this quote on your website where he said that you're just, you're, the little prick is hilarious. And you guys are doing these corporate comedy shows. We that are, sounds amazing. We, it's amazing. Since COVID is ending, Keckner's gotten busy. He's shooting some indie movies and I'm doing my thing. So we haven't been doing it as much, but we still, when asked, of course, can do these amazing corporate shows. It's sort of like bringing Saturday Night Live to your company. Yeah. Where you give us deta- details about your employees, what your business is, and we will do a show live on Zoom. Like David Kechner, a huge A-list star, will perform material about your company. And I write and produce it. So is he kind of doing like stand-up or is he doing like characters? Or? He's doing, yeah, he's doing characters in front of a green screen. Oh, okay. So, for example, there might be a little cameo from Todd Packer from The Office. Okay. Stuff like that. Yeah. Um, Champ Kine from Anchorman. Okay. That's, yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, he's, he's done so many characters, so many, yeah, I think he has like 200 credits on IMDb. It's, oh yeah. He works all the time. He's hilarious. It's insane. Um, so you, you've done so many amazing things, but you say the highlight was opening for John Stewart at Carnegie hall. Yes. Because as you brought up, I'm a classical violinist and I play pretty well. So the notion that I got to actually play to a sold out audience at Carnegie hall, play my violin but get huge laughs and applause based on my comedy. It was the ultimate. Yeah. That's like the best of both worlds. It's the best of both worlds. What is this thing you have coming out? Um, it's like a little sketch or a short or something. It's called how to not get shot and other advice from white people. Oh, unfortunately that has fallen by the wayside. Oh, no. We were supposed to shoot it. It was in development right before the pandemic. Okay. But comedy central has made a lot of, changes creatively and staff wise. Mm. So right now we're not moving forward with the project. It was a great project based on comedian DL Hughley's book, how not to get shot, which is basically him giving hilarious advice to black people on how to avoid getting shot by white people. (laughs) That sounds so timely. Like that sounds like it'd be really funny. And, uh, and you've worked with him in the past as well. So DL and I did his show for CNN uh, called DL Breaks the News. It was a really hip, funny show, almost too good for its time because it was on a news network. So there were a lot of people who did not find it funny and they'd write CNN and complain. So eventually it was taken oh, off. Oh, that was air. actually on CNN? It Interesting. Was. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, there's so many there's so many channels now. I feel like people don't even watch TV. They just watch like clips or they watch it on their phones. Well, or- you're right. And unfortunately, when we did that show, it was before the boom of people watching everything online. Mm-hmm. So it really was a TV show. Yeah. It's kind of interesting because in a way it's hard to keep up. And then in another way, it's like, if something is really good, people will see it. Like if it's a really good sketch or, or clip, like it's going to go viral. I agree with you. Yeah. Is it, is it hard to, um, some of cause some of the, your sketches, like I can't, I couldn't find them. Like I'd read about stuff that you wrote and I was like, I can't find this. Is that annoying sometimes with some of the SNL? It is annoying. Because if it was on SNL, then most of the stuff you can find. The exception is if it's something that used a lot of pop music hits, Mm. there's sometimes clearance and rights issues that NBC doesn't want to keep paying the residuals of using those songs again. Okay. So so you can have access to play that 
skeps, if that makes sense. Yeah. Cause like the, I heard you talking about the David Schwimmer monologue that you wrote and I was like, right? I think I remember seeing that, but it's been so long. I was like, I want to watch that again with all these cameos of child stars. Yeah. And I was like, that sounds so fun. To, and then I, I could only see like a little clip of it that cut off and uh, didn't show all the like Gary Coleman's and all the people that that's right. You yeah, had, we had JJ, Jimmy Walker from good times was in that sketch. Greg Brady from the Brady Bunch. It was and you amazing. flew them all in. We did. <laughs> That's so cool. So Lauren, like, he wasn't cheap with the budget. I mean, it, no, he's not. And NBC supports him in that regard. I have heard that the show has gotten a little cheaper since I was there. But I still think if Lauren feels strongly about something, they'll spend the money. So do you work clo- closely with Lauren or is he kind of just off into the... I did work closely with him. I mean, every week... He's the ultimate arbiter of what gets on the air. Mm-hmm. And he's very proactive in checking in. He watches the rehearsals and he'll give you notes as the writer. So it's he, he's remarkable that way. Hmm. And then what is it like off camera for with hanging out with these people? Do you guys, I mean, because I've worked at places, you know, obviously I've worked at the, the places I've worked at are not as exciting as SNL. Like, do you guys go out for happy hour together and hang out as a cast or... It tends to be smaller groups in my Mm -hmm. experience, right? So if there were particular writers or cast members who I bonded with, we'd go out to dinner, we'd go out for coffee. The schedule's a little frenetic, so you can't do that on many days. Mm -hmm. Obviously, on the weeks that we don't have a show, we can socialize. Mm -hmm. But when you're working together at NBC, there are only a few windows of time you could do that. And a lot of those like people that that are so funny on TV. Sometimes they're not as funny off camera, right? I mean, absolutely true. Oh yeah. No, some of them are, you know, personalities are more depressed or super quiet. That's true. And that's, you know, true with comedians as well. Yeah. Cause I've interviewed a lot of comedians and it's kind of surprising sometimes when I get them on the show and I'm like, Oh, I thought you'd be like more like making jokes and like laughing and like make, you know, but they're like, they can be very serious. I hope I'm not one of those. No, 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 no. You, you, no, you, no, you've been great. Yeah, no, I'm, oh, and I also think sometimes it's, it's, it's me though. And how I, the questions I'm asking and if I'm more serious, then it's like, so I have to kind of be a little bit more energetic, I guess. Sometimes That's right. They, they, a lot of performers will take their cues from you. Yeah. So they'll match you and your enthusiasm or that's right. Right. Yeah. No, this has been a blast. I really appreciate well, it. I, listen, I'm very impressed. You have done your homework. And other than calling me a college dropout, you got everything. <laughs> accurate. I just must have just heard that that part that after three weeks, you said you were done with. Right, but it was right. just the acting portion of it. So the right. NYU, no, it's, that's really cool. And it's always interesting to me when people continue with school or not, like, you know, if th- those are good decisions or not. And so I'm right. always fascinated by that because. You hear you hear it both ways, and you hear people find success either way. So it's like it's kind of interesting. I, I love the fact. Is that a the band Warrant yes. poster you have in the background? Yes, I, I've had a couple of the members on. I'm I'm a big '80s rock guy. So there's an old bit you would have loved. I used to do a bit about um, Casey Kasem. David Spade and I both did impressions of Casey Kasem. Oh yes, I've heard Spades. So yeah, I can do my bit for you. I still I've done this on TV. I go. Uh, I go, remember how Casey Kasem would give you facts about the song? Yes. But sometimes it led to nowhere. So he'd go, <laughs> in the history of rock and roll, there were a lot of great songs with the word fire in the title. There was Light My Fire by The Doors. Fire by the Ohio Players. And this song at number three this week, Warrant's Cherry Pie. <laughs> 
doesn't have anything to do. Just cherry pie has doesn't have the word fire in it. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Oh yeah. God. I love all that stuff. Like, yeah, I love music too. Like you even referenced Motley Crue in that violin yes. bit about the stoned, uh, yes, classical right. musician. That was pretty funny. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, great. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Um, I do like to end each episode with a charity. Is there one that you work with that you want to give a shout out to? There is. So I want to give a shout out to people for the American way, which is the charity that Norman Lear, the brilliant, comedy writer producer you know who did all in the family yeah so people with the american way is a nonprofit organization that fights for the rights of democracy meaning uh free speech anti-censorship love that yeah it's great and they're a great organization especially during this time when democracy has been threatened within our own country. Yeah. What is it? What are your thoughts on censorship? Because I remember in the eighties, like, I mean, we go back to eighties rock and stuff, how they were trying to censor music and they had to have like D Snyder come out there and say like, this is bullshit. But, uh, and I kind of thought we had moved past that. And now it's like, it's kind of coming back around, but instead of like the religious people, it's like, it's like this other sect about, you know, feminism and things, which obviously some of that is good, but yeah. it also makes like comedians scared, I think. Well, exactly. And I mean, I'm all for criticizing if you don't like the content of someone's speech, by all means, one should be able to criticize it and condemn it. That's a different issue than saying that someone doesn't have a right to say it, Right. That's what I mean by free speech is mm-hmm. that with rock music or hip hop, I think it's dangerous to get into a thing where you're telling artists you can't say these words um, as opposed to if you let the artists make the choice, then the public will let them know if they approve or not. It's sort of like that's how business works. Yeah. And if someone says something that's offensive and people think it's wrong or not funny or the song sucks because it's offensive, then people will stop buying their tickets to the concert. And that seems like a fair punishment. But sometimes I feel like people get punished too harshly. Like if you say something wrong, it's like, then you're like, your, your career's over sometimes. Right. That's kind of scary. Right. And that is scary. And that's honestly, because I'm more talking about the legalities of, you know, protecting people's freedom of speech. What you're talking about is more the nuance of what's going on now where, should someone be held accountable for something they said in a tweet or a stand-up bit five years ago or 10 years ago? And that's, because, that's to me, a very subjective choice. Right? Yeah. It's I feel like we, we're not allowed to make mistakes anymore, which is right. that's kind of scary. It's, it's kind of sad. Hopefully we... I mean, I don't know. Some, so obviously some of the people that got canceled, I mean, deserved it and I, right. they shouldn't have a career, but That's right. um, especially if they broke the law or something like that. But then some people it's kind of like, well, you know, did you really mean that? Were you making it the joke or, you know, it's, it all goes back I to what we were saying earlier with the intent, that, I think. So. That, that's exactly right. Yeah. And um, I think that people do change and evolve. So if someone can recognize the error of their ways of something they said that they regret, then they should have a right to, sincerely apologize and explain what they were thinking at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And then as a case by case basis, as you said, plenty of people should be given second chances, but it just depends. Mm -hmm. Depends on the scenario. Yeah. And also depend. I mean, I guess it depends for me 
with some comedians, like I feel like they could, they can get away with a lot more if I'm a fan of theirs right. and I hear them say stuff like, that's why I like going to the comedy store. Cause you can see these like a lister comedians working out material and they're saying stuff that's like, I mean, some of it's like really pushing the envelope, but some of it makes you cringe and some of it makes you laugh hilariously. And it's that's a right. fine and line. I, right. And like I told you, I wouldn't want to be held accountable for things I'm joking around with off stage you know, among my comedian mm -hmm. friends, mm -hmm. it would be unfair if someone said, well, I heard you say that. So therefore you should lose your job. Like that would be to me, be completely unfair. That's very different than if I decide to go on TV and do a routine right. that people are bothered by, well, then I sort of have to let the chips fall and see what people think. Absolutely. Well, like I said, this has been a blast. Is there anything else you want to promote or uh, people should go on no, your I website? Tell your, your great uh, listeners to um, go to hughfink.com, my website, mm -hmm. and you'll see uh, the list of when I'm going to be offering writing workshops. Okay. And people love the workshops. Yeah, so. that sounds amazing. I'm kind of interested myself. And then did sure. they, can they follow you on social media? Because I couldn't really find, I mean, I think I found you on Facebook personal. But yeah, unfortunately, I sort of keep a low profile. I use my website okay. to place to promote what I'm doing. Okay. Well, yeah. that's great. I'll keep, uh, yeah. I'll keep an eye on that for sure. Sure. Okay. Well, thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate it, Hugh. Thanks a lot. I really enjoyed it. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. Take care. Bye. Well, I really enjoyed hearing these stories, and I hope you did too. I think Hugh is definitely one I could have on the show again, because there's tons of stuff that we did not cover yet. Uh, make sure to check out his website. It's in the show notes if you want more information on his writing classes or just more information on Hugh. He's really got quite the resume. Also in the show notes, we've got the website for Hugh's charity and my website where you can find all my episodes, some of the press for my show, and all my social media links. Your support on social media helps me out a lot with the likes, shares, and comments. And also, I'm seeing more and more of you subscribing to the YouTube channel, which is really cool. I'm hoping to have more clips on there and eventually more short clips so that if you want a little sample of the show, you can check that out. Thank you so much again for listening and making it all the way through. I hope you have a great rest of your day. And remember to shoot for the moon. Shoot for the moon.